Hello, and welcome to Unscripted, Conversations About Sexual and Domestic Violence, a podcast that features employees and subject matter experts from domestic and sexual violence services and partner organizations who will discuss all aspects of interpersonal violence, plus solutions and resources for support for residents of Fairfax County. I'm your host, Kendra Lee. On this edition of Unscripted, I'm talking with Katherine Harlow, Domestic and Sexual Violence Counselor for Domestic and Sexual Violence Services, and Joanna Rojas, a licensed clinical social worker in private practice and a licensed training supervisor at RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. And we're going to talk about sexual intimacy after sexual assault. Catherine, Joanne, welcome to Unscripted, and thanks for being on the podcast today. I'm going to start first with today's topic might be particularly triggering. So listeners should feel free to call the Domestic and Sexual Violence 24-Hour Hotline at 703-360-7273. Again, that's 703-360-7273. In this country, the number of people who have experienced sexual violence is pretty massive. Statistics show us that every 68 seconds, someone is sexually assaulted. And nearly one in two adult women and one in four adult men in this country have experienced unwanted sexual contact in their lifetime. On average, there are about 465,000 victims aged 12 or older of sexual violence each year, with more than 63,000 children experiencing sexual abuse. So it stands to reason that many of these survivors might struggle with sexual intimacy at some point after their assaults. It's a tough topic that's difficult to talk about and hear about. But we need to talk about survivors finding the courage to be intimate after an assault. So responses I know are going to vary depending on who the survivor is you talk to. But what are some common sexual challenges a survivor might experience after they've been assaulted? Catherine, I'll start with you. Yeah, so some common sexual challenges survivors might experience might be general changes in their sexuality. So changes in desire, changes in feeling safe, being sexually intimate, um, even within the context of maybe healthy relationships or with a sexual partner that they've been intimate with before. Um, I've also worked with a lot of survivors who feel like that should be the response that they have. And then they experience maybe some shame when they don't want to stop having sex. So it can really run the full spectrum of needing to take a break from sex to just needing to explore different ways to rebuild that safety having sex. What about if your first sexual experience is an assault? How might that impact? Like, would you even know what normal sex and intimacy feels like? That can be very complicated, right? Um, One of the first things that want to make sure that a, survivor knows is that sex in a sexual assault is used as a weapon. Sex is a weapon. It, it It's not what intimacy and your first sexual experience should be like. Um, unfortunately, you know, many feel, uh, many survivors have shared that they feel as if now they are ruined, right? Now they are broken. Um, so, some of the psychological um, effects, um, aside from the obvious uh, body responses or body reactions, is that that feel as if who's going to want someone that um, has experienced that. And so it's important to remove that um, 
stigma of it being sex. It was a, a weapon used to harm. Okay. Good, good, good advice. What are some first steps that a survivor should take to recover their sexuality? I'm pretty sure therapy's listed among those, especially I'm talking to two therapists. But <laughs> um, what are some other steps beyond therapy? Yeah, so I would say therapy is certainly a great start, both individual and group. And when searching for a therapist, I would look for somebody who specializes in sexual trauma and somebody who creates a really safe, non-shaming environment around sexuality and is a really sex positive therapist who feels comfortable helping guide somebody through exploring and reconnecting with sexuality, which not all people are going to feel comfortable doing. Group therapy can be really powerful because then survivors can learn that they are not the only person who is struggling with intimacy after sexual trauma, and they can see the wide range of how what those impacts can be. Um, I would also recommend just easing back in and listening to yourself. There is no, regardless of whether or not you've experienced trauma, there is no right or wrong way to explore your sexuality. And you should do what makes you feel comfortable. Um, only engage in the sex that you want to have and the sex that you are comfortable in having. Um, another, um, other steps that can be taken is more self, you know, checking in with your own body and making sure what is feeling good to yourself. Like just getting to know, because sometimes what happens is a lot of survivors avoid. Right. We'll just mm -hmm. decide, you know what? I'm not, I'm not ready to go there. I'm not even going to try to go there. Um, unfortunately, as we know, avoiding is only, um, exacerbates, right? That, uh, reaction. So being able to take time for yourself, figuring out what feels good for yourself. And if you are in a partnership, being able to, uh, set some boundaries or be able to have those clear conversations with your partner of, you know, yes, that's okay. No, that is not okay. These are the things that don't feel comfortable for me anymore. And if they're not in a partnership, uh, I've had clients where they feel like, well, I was casually dating someone before and I felt fine and safe with them. Maybe I will, um, try that route, right? Someone that they feel safe and, and feel they can trust and will respect their boundaries. Okay. So I'm glad you brought up the, the self-work first. So you're saying they have to figure out what makes them feel emotionally safe and sexually safe before they do anything with a partner or a new, new partner or a, a already existing relationship or with just, you know, the next person they meet on Tinder or in the grocery store, whatever, whatever they decide to do, they should do the self-work first. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say, well, yes. I mean, if they're in a current relationship, if they're, um, you know, with a current partner, uh, sometimes if they haven't done that work or they haven't processed or discussed um, their trauma or the assault, they may not even recognize what their triggers may be until they are in that situation. So that's when that conversation needs to be important with that partner, like either being able to say, no, let's stop here and have that um, partner be patient because it does take time. And sometimes they learn things on the spot, you know, 
So what should those conversations look like, sound like? I, I'm imagining some things might be triggered in while you're being intimate, but should you have a conversation, not in a bedroom, not in an intimate situation, you know, situation where you're saying, this happened to me and I just need to talk to you, explain to you that I could be triggered. What does that conversation sound like? Conversations about sex and building sexual intimacy and sexuality should occur outside and inside the bedroom. So there's some prep work that you can do kind of laying the groundwork for, hey, I want to be more open in the way that we talk about sex. I want to be able to tell you as little or as much of the trauma experience they feel comfortable with, but setting the stage for there are going to be maybe certain sexual acts or positions or types of touch or triggers that might come up, discussing that beforehand, and then helping the partner understand how they can support the person that is trying to heal. So that conversation starting outside of the bedroom allows everybody to be kind of in a clear headspace on the same page, come up with the plan. And then those conversations continue in the bedroom when those triggers are evoked. And that's a really good way for both the survivor and the partner they're engaging sexually with to be prepared and to kind of have a game plan that's going to make everybody feel safe. I listened to another podcast where they said you should have a safe word, but that the safe word should not be stop because during an assault, you might have been saying stop and that could be triggering. So you should come up with some other word. It could be silly, like lollipop or whatever. How much do you guys recommend that? I think if it works, you know, if you could come up with the word, um, maybe even um, when you said lollipop, I was just like, oh, that could even be like a little playful, right? Um, mm -hmm. So to make it a little bit more lighthearted uh, and playful, I think it depends on the individual. Um, I did, I did want to pop in. And just say one other thing when we're talking about partners, we have to also remember that there is support for partners out there, that partners are able to get some services through Fairfax County, through uh, other ways to learn how to best support their partner through this, because it's difficult for loved ones as well. Especially sexual partners, because it can be... Even if they know, like, cognitively, this is not about me. My partner is not ready to engage sexually the way that we used to because they are going through a lot. They need time to heal. It can still be tough to deal with that perception of sexual rejection. And Kendra, with that question about the safe word, one thing that I really like about it, even if you never need to use it, it means that you're talking about having safe consensual sex before you're entering the bedroom. So like even coming up with that plan beforehand can increase the sense of safety. Okay. Good to know. This is a reminder for any listeners who might feel triggered or partners who may need some support that they can call the domestic and sexual violence 24 hour hotline at 703-360-7273. The next thing I'm thinking about is should survivors take a break from sex? Why or why not? I'm going to say that it really is up to the individual. There is no right or wrong way. One of the things that we know that happens after a sexual assault, sometimes there's two extremes, right? Either go all the way of like, I'm not even going to 
try. I'm not even going to do that. I am going to take a complete break from that. I don't want anybody to touch me, so on. And then there's the other one of, you know what, I'm going to reclaim this. I'm going to get back in control and I'm going to choose to be intimate with whoever I want as many times as I want. So it really is up to the individual and there's no right or wrong. Okay. Really is about having, once again, the the sex that you're comfortable having. And you can redefine what that looks like. Sex can look like a lot of different things and a lot of different types of acts. And you can pick the ones that feel comfortable to you and the ones that don't. Okay, we're going to insert a an anonymous survivor story here. And I want you both to respond to this. My attack was brutal and very painful. Since it happened, I can no longer stand to have someone touch me. How am I supposed to have a normal sex life without touch? Joanne? How would you respond to this survivor? First of all, it's completely understandable that that pain is what stays in the brain and in the body, right? The body is holds that memory as well. So what I would say is understanding that it is hurtful right now, but it doesn't have to be a forever. And there is no timeline. Um, one of the things is having to retrain the brain of what is safe, right? So it may not happen right away, but it might start little by little and depending on whether this person has a partner or not. Um, it's finding that safe person and starting just in the smallest ways. Is it just a hug that's going to uh, be that first step? Or is it just a touch on the shoulder? Is it a kiss on the cheek? Very, very tiny steps. And knowing, doing that body and brain work to be able to retrain your brain and let your body know that it is no longer in danger. So how does somebody move toward healthy sexual attitudes and reactions that aren't defined by the assault? Catherine, I'm going to let you tackle this one. Yeah, and that can be a really tough one because even folks who have not experienced sexual trauma, have, like we live in a society that still is not very sex positive. There is a lot of shame uh, surrounding talking about sex and that shame exponentially increases when we add trauma and assault to it. Um, so building that healing and moving towards those sexual, ad- like healthier sexual attitudes I really think that first step is just acknowledging what are the unhealthy beliefs I have about sex that aren't serving me, you know, and going through, there is a um, sex therapist named Wendy Maltz who came up with like a, a sexual inventory basically of beliefs about sex and the unhealthy beliefs about sex that folks might have that like sex is used to control or sex is dirty or sex is scary. And is first like noticing what are those sexual beliefs I might have that aren't serving me and aren't allowing me to have the healthy sexual relationships I want. And then starting to talk about it in safe spaces. So talk about it with your therapist, with your support group. If you have safe family and friends that you can talk to about these beliefs, starting to reduce the stigma and reframe them by really having healthy communication around it recognizing where that shame is and trying to reframe that. 
Those internalized messages are very strong and they can come from a variety of places, culture, religion, uh, family values, family attitudes. So being able to recognize where those internalized messages come from and being able to deconstruct those and figure out this is what I'm going to hold on to because it serves me and I, um, it aligns with my values and this, this other thing doesn't serve me anymore. Seeking resources that are more sex positive, I would say. So like listening to podcasts that talk about sex in a healing, healthy way, talk about it in a way that's not dirty or shameful. Um, really accessing those resources to start because it's going to take a certain amount of more positive content pulled into our brain to start to reframe all of that negative stuff. Okay. I'm inserting another anonymous survivor story here. Since my attack, I've been afraid of being alone with men I don't know, especially in small spaces like elevators. I was 20 at the time and out for a night with my girlfriends. We think someone slipped something in my drink. My friends found me outside the bar, unconscious in an alley, and took me to the hospital. A rape kit confirmed I'd been assaulted and there was date rape drug in my system, but I don't remember anything about what happened. I'm 32 now. So this has been going on for 12 years. This person has felt unsafe around strange men, which you're going to run into strangers everywhere you go almost unless you stay at home. So what, how would you support and counsel this survivor? One of the first things that I think I would do is just validate that this is a really normal response and that even though this person might not remember the details of the assault, it is still being absorbed by their brain and their body, which is why they're having these triggers. Validate that those triggers are really normal, that their experience of fearing strange men, if they feel that strange men are a threat, is a normal experience. And then help them like ground in the moment, kind of teaching those coping and grounding skills that will allow them to stay in the present moment, evaluate for safety, but remind themselves that right now I'm not under threat, that this is old stuff. So that might be grounding using the five senses. It might be doing an age progression. So kind of reminding themselves that like, I'm 32 years old now. I am in a safe public space. Like I am surrounded by light or security cameras or whatever it is in the environment keeping them safe so they can start to feel like they have more control over their safety in those environments. Also, I'd like to add that um, in this instance, I have some survivors that have wanted to remember, thinking that if I know exactly what happens, maybe that'll help them maybe heal or understand. And what's important to know is that your brain is protecting you for a reason, right? We don't remember things probably for the betterment of our own health sometimes. And I also kind of want to say, I, I completely agree with Catherine, of course, but then there's also an, it's okay if you don't want to step into that elevator because there's a single man in there. It's okay to cross the street or go to a different room if you need to. Um, one of the things that we're raised in the society is, oh, we, we're supposed to be polite to everyone. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. no, you know, you are allowed to have your own personal boundaries 
and make a decision of whether you are going to choose to be in this room with this one person if you don't, you know, you don't feel comfortable. You're allowed to do that and, and not be afraid to do that until you do become comfortable. You can take another elevator. Exactly. You can wait. They come every couple of minutes. This is true. I imagine that there is a trust element that your trust has been betrayed somehow, even if, it, if this is a stranger assault. How do you relearn trust? Are there exercises to do to relearn trust? So when we're talking about rebuilding, since our topic is sexual intimacy, like sexual trust, I would want to remind people that sexual intimacy is only one type of intimacy. There is also emotional intimacy that can help to build trust first. There's non-sexual physical intimacy. So those Mm -hmm. first steps, like I think Joanne said earlier, might be, am I even comfortable with a hug? Am I comfortable sitting next to this person on the sofa? Am I comfortable touching hands? So slowly building up, giving yourself the opportunity to open up to trust, but also giving the other people that you want to build intimacy with the opportunity to prove to you that they've earned your trust, that they can be safe, that they can respect your boundaries can be one of the things that you can do. We don't need to jump right to sexual intimacy. We can start with much much smaller steps, see how you feel um, and trusting your gut. So like if your gut is telling you that, Hey, I set this boundary with this person, you know, it was maybe a non-sexual physical boundary that I wanted to sit close to them, but did not want them to touch me. And they didn't listen to that. Then maybe that person's not ready to earn your trust yet. Um, And to piggyback on what you're saying about uh, trusting your gut, oftentimes because of you know, the, the assault or the trauma, there's a lot of shame, right? And there's a lot of self blame or thinking, well, why didn't I scream? Why didn't I run? Why didn't I fight? Why didn't I, you know, a gazillion other things? And Mm -hmm. it's important to recognize that one, your brain is going to automatically respond in the best way it needs to in order for you to survive the, the assault. So oftentimes we want to scream, but we just can't. So it's important to also trust yourself. I think it's really hard for someone to trust their own gut when they think, oh, well, my gut didn't help me with this. And this is what ended up happening. So Mm -hmm. trusting yourself, forgiving yourself for whatever that may be, um, I think it needs to start there first before being able to move on and being able to trust others and just give yourself grace. What about survivors who are aroused during an assault, which I understand can be common? Um, How do we support those survivors who also have to contend with what they think is their body betraying them? Well, one of the important things about that is, again, the it's an automatic, our bodies are going to automatically respond and react to stimuli. And it is something that we have no control over. You take it, take, for example, being tickled, right? You get Mm -hmm. tickled, some of us react violently. And (laughs) right to being tickled, Mm -hmm. is it something we feel that we can control? No. And it's the same, um, 
you know, when our bodies respond during an assault or an abuse, it is beyond our own control. And again, going to what I said earlier is about also just forgiving yourself and knowing like, okay, my body just reacted. It's not about me wanting it. It's not about me liking it. It's just a body response. Yeah, that that response of like that arousal non-concordance. And there's a couple of good like TED Talk videos that I like to send clients or, or share in sessions. So I think that education can be really powerful, mm-hmm. especially because that that arousal response that can happen that like Joanne said is purely a physiological response to stimuli. It has nothing to do with desire. So like desire are our thoughts and feelings surrounding wanting to have sex. Mm-hmm. That is when you want to have sex is that desire. Arousal is just a physiological change or response to a stimuli. In those, those two things, they can go hand in hand, like in a healthy sexual relationship where you want to have sex with this person. Arousal and desire might interconnect, but they don't have to. You can have an arousal response without that desire. So I think educating folks on that so you know that can be really important, especially because a lot of survivors are also getting messages maybe from the person that hurt them and the person that assaulted them if they are confronted saying, oh, well, you wanted it, you liked it. And it's really easy for survivors to internalize that blame. So really separating arousal and desire can be helpful. Okay. A lot to unpack. You guys have given great information. I especially like the tickle analogy, (laughs) Joanne. I had not heard that one before, and that's a really good one. That'll do it for this episode of Unscripted, Conversations About Sexual and Domestic Violence. Thanks for listening, and thanks so much to Catherine and Joanne for joining us. If you or someone you know has experienced interpersonal violence, call the Domestic and Sexual Violence 24-Hour Hotline at 703-360-7273. That's 703-360-7273. Or visit fairfaxcounty.gov and search for Domestic and Sexual Violence. To listen to other county podcasts, visit www.fairfaxcounty.gov podcasts. Unscripted Conversations About Sexual and Domestic Violence is produced by the Fairfax County, Virginia Government.